Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. If you've been listening to the news lately, three words may have jumped out at you. The Green New Deal. 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 Deal. One of the more ambitious policy proposals Washington has seen in a very long time, and it's called the Green New Deal. Here's one of the Green New Deal's champions, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, at the launch press conference in February. Climate change and our environmental challenges are one of the biggest existential threats to our way of life. And in order for us to combat that threat, we must be as ambitious and innovative in our solution as possible. Today is also the day that we choose to assert ourselves as a global leader in transitioning to 100% renewable energy and charting that path. And not surprisingly, there's also a bunch of Green New Deal skeptics out there, too. One of the most dangerous, impractical, misguided, economically guaranteed to be devastating plans ever. I don't understand how you're going to give a job for everybody, how you're going to create clean energy throughout the country in every building of the land. I just don't agree this is the right way to approach things. In this episode of Critical Value, we'll aim to get past both the naysayers and the yaysayers and focus on what we know and don't know about this proposal. Let's start here. The idea of a Green New Deal has been around for years, but it's never gotten more attention. So why are we talking about the Green New Deal now? Like, what's the urgency? Well, one big thing is that climate change predictions are getting more and more bleak. Even though the international community has been discussing efforts to alleviate climate change for decades now, the trend lines are not good. The latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, has some alarming findings. We've already experienced about one degree Celsius of global warming above pre-industrial levels, and we only have about 12 years to act in order to keep it from rising another half degree. Acting that fast requires huge changes. Here's my Urban Institute colleague, Carlos Martin. So keeping us to the 1.5 degree really requires reconsidering our basic assumptions about the energy sources that we use and the effects of what we've already done on the planet. So the IPCC report suggests that by 2030, we have to have reduced our greenhouse gas emissions, our CO2 emissions, by 45%. And by 2050, we have to be at zero. So if we don't start now laying the groundwork for that 2030 reduction, it's going to be a huge shock if we try to do it in 2030. So that's one important piece of context. Basic, sure, but climate change is real. It's happening now. And the impacts may come sooner than expected. The past five years were the warmest in recorded history. And that warming is only expected to continue. The director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies told the New York Times, quote, we're no longer talking about a situation where global warming is something in the future. It's here. It's now. The policy implication is that some public leaders are starting to talk more about the deep systemic changes that would be required if we're to shift direction. Enter the Green New Deal. 
Green New Deal. Now, it's important to know that the Green New Deal is not yet a law. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. And sorry, Schoolhouse Rock, the Green New Deal is not even a bill yet. It's currently just a resolution that calls upon Congress to create a plan. Here's Carlos again. I think a lot of people are assuming that the Green New Deal is actual legislation when what it is is a resolution that's passed, that's put forward in Congress, um, both in the Senate and on the House, that is more a set of principles more than anything. It's a very short document. It's only a 14-page resolution, really laying out ideas, goals, a vision, really, for addressing climate change issues simultaneously with the potential economic stress that, that climate change policy could incur. And here's another Urban Institute colleague, Kristen Durham. So I describe the Green New Deal as an aspirational framework for addressing both climate change and economic insecurity in the nation. You could think of this aspirational framework as a sort of umbrella that holds together several entwined policy ideas. To put you in the right frame of mind, here's an umbrella sound effect. Does that sound like an actual umbrella? Unclear. But what is clear is that under the Green New Deal umbrella are a few key goals. One, to decrease and really to try to eliminate all greenhouse gas emissions in the coming years. Two, to invest in the infrastructure of the U.S. to help shift the economy in this decarbonization and create millions of good jobs and economic security. And three, to ensure these changes are done with equity and justice in mind so that vulnerable communities don't bear the brunt of this shift. Now, none of these concepts alone are new, but the way the Green New Deal fuses the environmental movement with workforce goals, as well as fairness and equity, is compelling. There has traditionally been an understanding of the linkage between environment and economy. Up until, I'd say, the mid-20th century, those were always viewed in tension and conflict with each other. You can't have positive environmental growth with positive economic growth. I think what we're seeing now is that that's not necessarily the case. There are there's obviously clear tensions in certain sectors, but in others, it's it, there's an opportunity to move forward. So some of the hype, I think, overlooks that core vision, that core concept that environment and the economy don't have to exist in tension. The big question is, does this make sense? So it actually does make a lot of sense to me. As everyone knows, in order to transition our society to one that uses clean and renewable energy instead of fossil fuels, the country would need to undergo widespread infrastructure adjustments. And that's going to encompass everything from the cars we drive, the public transportation we use to commute, the construction of buildings we live in, ones we work in, um, to the electricity, obviously the electricity that powers our factories and our offices and our homes. Um, And those infrastructure changes translate to a lot of new jobs, and those new jobs will require a large number of people to be trained with new skills. Um, And that's going to be in industries ranging from engineering to manufacturing to construction to software development. So we're talking a lot of new workforce development that would be needed in order to implement something like this. And the reality is these kinds of changes would impact a huge cross-section of the country, and it might impact the most vulnerable the most negatively. Green New Deal proponents aim to address those concerns from the start. It's quite groundbreaking to have one of the principles be foregrounded 
that disadvantaged communities of multiple kinds. So this is uh, low-income communities, people of color, physically challenged communities, um, the elderly are disproportionately affected by environmental changes, environmental hazards in particular, and have a historical legacy of being affected by those, really. So this is the first time I've seen a not only this kind of principle framework for future legislation being explicit, but also making sure that disadvantaged communities are mentioned right from the beginning. Now, remember, the Green New Deal is just a resolution to make a more detailed plan. So there's going to be some serious deviling in those details. Here's Carlos. Comments about how how does this then go into actual operationalization are fairly warranted. My concern is more that those decisions that how do you translate these principles into actual programs and policies are informed by evidence and precedent of what has, what has worked well and what hasn't worked well in the past. So the important thing is that wherever the Green New Deal goes from here, leaders should start with the research and the evidence of what we've learned in the past. And Kristen has thought a lot about the existing platforms that could help jumpstart a new New Deal. So American job centers and workforce development boards could definitely be leveraged to help get people into clean energy job training programs and into related employment, and also to work with clean energy employers to meet their workforce needs. Another very important thing that we might leverage would be community and technical college systems. They could play a big role in providing clean energy job training The U.S. Department of Labor has actually invested billions of dollars in community and technical colleges over the past decade to build their capacity to provide education and training around high demand jobs um, and to help economically disadvantaged populations and displaced workers access those job training programs. The evidence on these types of programs is growing, and Kristen highlighted one program in particular. So one important example is the Trade Adjustment Assistance and College and Career Training, or TACT, grant program, which provided billions of dollars in funding over four years. This funding went to over 700 institutions to allow them to create the infrastructure, the curricula, the supportive services, and the state and local partnerships needed to train people for high-demand jobs. There's ongoing evaluation activities for TACT that show that most of the training programs implemented were successful in creating programs that meet the needs of employers and that they're successfully moving students into good jobs. So there may be some opportunities to leverage workforce development programs already in place for a Green New Deal to develop green jobs. So yes, there are, you know, facilities at these colleges that have labs, you know, where people get hands-on job training experience and sometimes employers even serve as instructors. There's really innovative ways that community and technical colleges are carrying out these job training programs. So, you know, there would definitely need to be a funding infusion into the colleges from the federal level and, you know, state funding as well to help them implement specific job training programs for clean energy job training and employment. But the facilities are there. The partnerships are there. You know, the supportive services are often there to help get, you know, more disadvantaged populations into these programs and help them succeed. 
One outstanding question that Green New Deal advocates haven't talked much about yet is the price tag or how you might pay for this level of investment. Here's Carlos. So another, I think, worthwhile criticism is about how much this is actually going to cost and where is the money going to come from to pay for this. So on the cost side, certainly there is going to be um, implications for creating these training programs, for converting um, to new energy sources. Right now, there are no real projections and past evaluations suggest that some programs may not have been as cost effective as we would have liked. Ultimately, new programs and new investments will require new sources of revenue or taking on greater debt. Certainly, um, there are ideas about the tax revenues, which is what we currently use. I mean, most jurisdictions that are doing something in their states, their counties, their localities to address the effects of climate change are using traditional municipal bond financing. There are vehicles that already exist that can account for payments for new infrastructure. So those things are pretty tried and true. So yes, cost considerations will be important, but Carlos also argues that maybe we need to approach these types of problems with a time horizon longer than a 10-year CBO score. So this, in addition to how much is this going to cost, the other issue is who is going to pay for it. Certainly the authors of the resolution suggest that, well, how much is this, is it worth it to save our planet? What is, how can you put a price tag on that? And there's a lot of value in talking about how do we measure, how do we monetize those externalities that have always been left out of the economic equation that include the quality of air that we breathe, the quality of water that we drink, and the suffering that people may um, result from increased temperatures, from losing their properties to floods, et cetera. And sometimes investments in prevention can save money down the line. I mentioned the fact that we spend one sixteenth of what we spend on disaster recovery, on disaster mitigation, even though we know every dollar that we invest in disaster mitigation is going to save us in disaster recovery afterwards, not to mention the lives and the misery that is um, that we'd be sparing after a disaster. So think about that in terms of climate change. Really, if we invest now in strategies that reduce the potential for further climate change, as well as address the effects of what we're already what we've already changed, then we're saving that much more down the road in terms of disaster recovery costs, in terms of changing out infrastructure, and in terms of human lives. So, what happens next for the Green New Deal? The resolution is likely to come to a vote in the House and the Senate in the coming weeks or months. And while it may or may not pass, it's definitely going to be a point of conversation and contention in the coming presidential election and beyond. So maybe it's best to consider this a new starting point for a national discussion that we'll have to have now and in the future. Here's Kristen with one last closing thought. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the way you look at it, right? If you're taking it at face value and thinking like, how would we ever implement this? You know, this is completely ridiculous and it's not feasible. Well, yeah, it's not feasible, (laughs) but the authors know that, you know, but they want to move the country in this direction. And if you take, if you look at it from a framework perspective and start thinking about the things that exist in the country, the structures and the systems that can be leveraged to implement important components of it, then it starts to feel a little more real and we can take a positive approach and make 
good practical policy recommendations to help implement some of these things. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, the Green New Deal is not yet a law, but rather a resolution to develop a plan to eliminate carbon emissions in the coming years. The resolution would encourage large-scale economic and workforce investments and ensure that policies also look at the impact of changes on vulnerable groups. Two, Green New Deal proponents can look to the evidence on some promising existing programs and workforce infrastructure on the strongest ways to create green jobs. And three, the details on any plan will matter. It's unclear how much a Green New Deal will cost or how it might be paid for, but like the original New Deal, any policy shift will represent a big change to business as usual. So that's our show. Thanks again to Carlos Martin and Kristen Durham. You can find more about their work in the show notes on our webpage, www.urban.org slash critical value. If you like the show, we have three other words for you. Tell your friends, tell your friends, tell your friends, tell your friends. We love getting connected to other smart policy-minded folks out there. And it would be fantastic if you could take a few seconds to go on your Apple podcast app or whatever app you're listening to or head over to iTunes or whatever it takes to rate the podcast. We'll take five stars. It takes like three seconds and it helps to get the word out there about this podcast. Big shout out to Kate Villarreal, Dave Connell, and the great Katie Smith for all their help, and our sound editor, Riley Byrne, from Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner, signing off.